0: Welcome back everybody to the Talking Sportsbooks podcast and coming up today our guest is Tottenham Hotspur's record-holding former captain Steve Perriman. He joins me to talk about his just released book which is called A Spur Forever which chronicles a career which spanned no fewer than three decades at White Hart Lane during which time he won more trophies than any other player in the history of the club. And we will take a look as well at what's on the bestsellers lists for December in both the UK and the US. Now, between 1971 and 1984, Tottenham Hotspur were a team known for its ability to succeed in cup competition rather than winning leagues. Two League Cups, two FA Cups, two UEFA Cups were all won during this time with some incredible memories created for those who experienced the era. And just in case they've slipped your mind or you missed them first time around, here's a reminder of some of those moments.
1: Brilliant And his Archibald has got a chance Uh, Good save, Ricky Villar Ricky Villar scored And it was made by his fellow Argentine Ozzy Ardiles After 8 minutes The man who was taken off on Saturday Driven in by Ardiles Archibald was blocked by Corrigan good goalkeeping but he couldn't stop the rebound Villar the scorer made look at this by Ozzy Ardiles the skill is there for all to see brilliantly set up Corrigan did awfully well here against Archibald that wasn't his fault and Ricky Villar puts the rebound in between the two defenders and Spurs are ahead model oh the chance here for Archibald Cooks 2-2. And the double axe works again. Spurs stayed onside. Archibald went in first. Garth Crook scored. That's his 22nd of the season. It comes after 71 minutes. And the penalty appeals don't matter now. Huddle again. Amazing. He just played a brilliant stop ball in there. It slowed up for them. And Crook scores. To McKenzie. What a good tackle by Graham Roberts. And now Galvin. Spurs have got two to his right. And Galvin wants to go on his own. Villa. He and still Ricky Villa. What a fantastic run! went round one two three Joe Corrigan came to block and Villar squeezed it in Spurs celebrated in great style as we see it again from behind the goal just look how many players he twisted and turned past and then got his shot in so Ricky Villar has scored twice in this replay having been taken off on Saturday good tackle by Hoddle on Wodek. Roberts Hoddle, Hoddle, it's there, it's there, he won it with the tackle and he scored the goal. Glenn Hoddle, the pride of Tottenham, has sent the fans delirious again. Referee, Stainrod, Roberts, away from John Gregory, Graham Roberts, Archibald to his right, he overran it but still got through, this is Graham Roberts, was he brought down, penalty. Tony Curry came in behind him. Fennick was in close attendance, but a penalty has been given. and It was a splendid run by Graham Roberts. Terry Venable's side couldn't stop him. Bob Hazel made an error in that early on, but Roberts went on. And what happens here? Tony Curry comes in with the tackle. Down he goes. Penalty. Hoddle to take. Scores. Never has a penalty been missed in an FA Cup final at Wembley. And Tony Curry gave that one away, the Rangers captain. Will oh, they get it home? Falco! And it might come for Ardiles! Oh, he's hit the crossbar! Oh, my word! Almost the storybook return there for Ardiles. And he's hit the crossbar. Roberts! He's dead. it! Graham Roberts has made it 1-1. Tony won Danny Thomas to keep his spirits up. Well, let's see. Maybe Tony Parks will pull off another save. Good Johnson from Iceland. Is the man taking it? He saved it! Spurs have won it! Tony Parks is the hero.
0: the one constant among all of those successes and indeed those of the 1970s was Steve Perriman although the eagle-eyed of you will remember that he did miss the second leg of that uh, famous UEFA Cup final victory over Anderlecht in 1984. I met up with Steve last week to talk about his new book A Spur Forever and that record-breaking career in a Spurs shirt. I want to start by sharing a few words that have been used to describe you. Class act, smart, intelligent, funny, inspirational, great captain, very good leader. The majority of those words were used to describe you by Glenn Hoddle used in his foreword in the book. Now, how does it make you feel To realise the esteem in which you are held, not only by Glenn, but an awful lot of other people within the game.
2: Yeah, um, when my wife read that, she cried. Um, Which I suppose is acceptable because she's a lady. Uh, If I could have cried, if I'd have had enough about me to be able to cry, I think I would have done as well. Because... um, you know, I, I respect and respected Glenn so much uh, ever before that uh, introduction to the book uh, because of the way he played the game, because of the way he acted, because of, you know, everything about him. So when someone of his stature talks in the way that he did, and, you know, I, I don't realise when they're calling me Skip, for instance, because they've always done that and um, i went to a tottenham game some years ago in the old stadium and i asked where ozzy was in the stadium and i was told that he's in the one two five club so i eventually found it in the west stand there and walked in and uh ozzy was in the far corner and he saw me and he tapped his glass so everyone stopped this is about an hour before the game and he said the captain is in the building and they (laughs) applauded and uh, so it's moments like that reading Glenn's forward of the book Ozzy's comment on that particular day Um, I I think it's comment on um, the fact that I of course I had to play my own game um, but I attempted to help the others in the team and even if yours the ideal is World Cup winner, or your Glenn Hoddle with the special talents that he had, um, they needed help um, because, as my brother explained to me some years earlier, um, players have not got eyes in the back of their head. So guess what? You can have an opinion on what they should be doing with the ball, and uh, it makes you a better player, Steve. It gives you an opinion on the game so i sort of listened to this from big brother ted and uh i suppose that stayed with me all my game and i'm obviously a team orientated person people like to say that i'm a leader um that was if you want to if you want to scale it right down was try to help the people in my team do better things on the ball that they may mm-hmm. they may have done better on the ball than what they necessarily would have done with the information that I gave them and of course they didn't have to they didn't have to do what I said if I told Glenn to change the play to Tony Galvin he didn't have to do that, Glenn had enough about him that if he looked at that and then saw something better he, would, he could do that as well so um, uh, it makes me proud to read those comments and to know that, that the more individual type players uh, respected someone like myself doing more of a team job than they were doing, which actually makes for a better team, the, the, the balance of all those things.
0: You had a set of values instilled in you in your early life beginning with family, obviously, and then the club under Bill Nicholson. But as you grew up, you showed, uh, at times, great resourcefulness and leadership capability. And I refer, of course, to the uh, petitioning that you did of the council at the time to try and get them to turn a piece of scrubland in the locality into a park for the local children to play in. And it's a park that still exists today.
2: Yeah, well, don't, you know, the other message was don't get above yourself, Um and, and that was very evident in that era. Um, so but that started at a young age and you know youngest of three boys uh, on a council estate I'm not saying mm-hmm. we had a had a poor life by any means but we made the best of what we had and uh, what we had was uh, a mum and dad, who, who, uh, a dad who went out to work, he was a Coleman in my first memory and then eventually he 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 had to pack that in because the coal business was, was going um, out out of fashion i suppose so he ended up working at heathrow as a, as a as a, a a loader bag loader so um, you know you you, you had f- we didn't go hungry or anything but you know the food was limited you just you just made the best of what you got and do you know what you were very happy with your with what you'd got and um, you fought your corner. Two elder brothers that were particularly nice people who did not push me to one side because I was younger than them. They they involved me in everything that went on, which involved playing over the park, which involved before the park playing on the scrub land, as you say, or, in, or outside the house in the road, cul-de-sac, so a bit safer than most roads. So, um, you know, my, my, I have to say that my, my two brothers were uh, mentors for me in their own way and and I'm lucky enough to know that that these people sort of dragged me along or dragged me up um, into situations that I probably wouldn't have chosen for myself. And so, you know, going around the estate to, 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 to get people to sign that petition, which eventually worked, and it's still there today and I drive past it not so often because my parents are dead so I don't really have to revisit their, their house anymore. And um, so it, just good ethics from everyone around me and and this bit about having people that led me as much as I was ended up being a leader um, people led me at various stages of my life and um which i've tried to thank in the book if, if i could
0: yeah you did now listen when you go back to when it all began your your love of football i mean you were at a grammar school where there was no real football played and it was only a change of teacher and a 9-1 win over Harrow School, after which you get a knock on the door uh, from Charlie Faulkner, who was the Spurs scout at the time. The way things used to develop then, knocks on doors from scouts, coaches coming round to the house. I mean, you had Bill Nick pot round, Ron Greenwood was in the kitchen. What was this like for a, for a young, impressionable teenager to see these famous people in your house all trying to get your signature?
2: yeah well that should be very daunting i think that i was so naive that um it just it just became the norm and that's really not being blasé i people always ask me what how and why do i think i had such a long career and again taking it back to sort of base i Never really, uh, I use the word fancied myself. Um, eventually, when I'm playing games on television, I used to hate watching my own game because I I thought I ran with a poor style. Uh, my brother, oldest brother, once said to me, "Steve, you you look like you don't straighten your legs out, and you 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 look like you're running uphill." It, it wasn't talking about the distance that I was covering or or the pace of it but just my the look of of my running action and um I, I really I really mean this I never thought I was that good a player and therefore um of course you 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 must be a good player for these people to be turning up on your doorstep and saying nice things about you and wanting to sign for their club so um I just really did not get carried away with myself, and I think that led to me having a a long career. It probably led me to not pushing my case enough, be it with radio or television, or you know, I wasn't phoning people up asking them to interview me or
0: yeah, you know, get yeah. my
2: face on television or or you know, talking nicely to Bill Nick to get myself and others to get myself selected. I I was what I was, and, that, and, and I have this feeling about England. I am what I am, and if it's good enough for you, pick me. If it's not good enough for you, don't pick me, but there's enough going, enough else going on in my life that I think I'll be able to cope with it, so... It, um,
0: did your mum, did your mum really tell Ron Greenwood not to sign you because you had a, a heart mum murmur uh, and you only ate cornflakes?
2: yes and his favorite food is bacon rinds <laughs> and this this typical my mother um god bless her joyce one of nine children uh she had seven brothers one sister and a uh, lovely lovely lady a typical mum always always uh indoors when you get home from school and um which people tell me these days is sort of unheard of with young players yeah. um, they you know they they get home and there's food left for them and and notes left for them and keys left for them and and stuff like that well of course, I was from a different era but but um a very special lady who had her way of not not necessarily bringing you down, but that era was was full of um, sort of don't don't get above yourself, and uh, you know if I if I went out and bought a new sweater or whatever, and it's black, and I I, I put it together with black trousers and etc., and and I'd come down before sort of going out with friends or whatever, she'd say, ooh, chase me." <laughs> 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 so it just. <laughs> Just lovely sort of comments, and uh, she had a very dark humour uh, as well. So, um, uh, yeah, she did say that to him. She so you... was not aware who Gron Greenwood was, and, um, and I didn't find this out till probably seven or eight years ago when my brother, uh, reminiscent, um, because my oldest brother, Ted, who was so important to my career, really wanted me to go to West Ham he felt because this was sixty seven, remember sixty six World yeah, Cup. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Hearst, Moore and Peters. Um, that's the place where they'll teach you how to play football. And he he felt that West Ham played in the right manner. Not that Spurs didn't or or other teams that wanted me, but, you know, this was more in the sort of focus of Ron Greenwood and his coaching and the Academy of West Ham and the the teaching that they gave to these three very special characters and players. So, um, uh, she, but she didn't know anyone. She didn't know anything about football, and therefore, um, she was sort of trying to bring it down to to earth. I think, and and you know, the, the, he's, he, he's not this special player that every or or character that everyone thinks he might be. Um, because he's had sort of weaknesses back in his, his growing up years and, and you know I'm always on at him, he just doesn't eat enough he doesn't, uh, he doesn't like Sunday dinners, he, he wants cornflakes instead of Sunday dinner <laughs> and uh, bacon rinds are his favourite food etc and all those things and you know the, the, the heart murmur came in amongst it all so um, I think it was a way of making conversation rather than t- to try to put anyone off me or on me as such
0: Uh, See, you signed for Tottenham, which meant uh, that you did get your ticket for the 67 Cup final. Great quote from Bill Nicholson when he saw you coming across the car park. Yeah, son, if you don't sign, you're not getting a ticket. But when you did sign, you weren't quite 16 years of age and you used the word special. Uh, There were a few at the club, few of the more senior players that thought you had a bit of this aura of believing you were a, a new Johnny Haynes.
2: Well, they're looking from the outside. They've never met me yet. Yeah. I've only ever been schoolboy training, so there's no, no apprentices there, no young pros there. And um, hopefully, if they'd have seen me at the schoolboy training, I was normal. I didn't open my mouth. I didn't, uh, I didn't brag about playing at Wembley or, or being an England schoolboy. And remember, all that was thrust upon me during one year. That was my last year at school, my my under-15 year. I went from being, because we had this new sportsmaster that you mentioned earlier, when he came in, I thought to myself, although we were only playing friendlies at that time, I was thinking, am I going to retain my place in the team? Because this new, new judgement walking in the door. And I ended up playing for England Schoolboys at Wembley. So I think anyone with any sort of, uh, level of judgment would say, well, of course, I'm going to get in the school team. I'm, I'm, I'm that good, but but it comes back to that point. I didn't really ever rate myself. So, um, uh, so yes, I joined Spurs. Uh, a, a bit of fanfare about it. Some articles in the paper. Spurs wanted it to be known that they've they've competed and won this race for the. For the schoolboy that was most wanted, I was only the most wanted because I wasn't on a form uh schoolboy form, whereas everyone else on that international schoolboy pitch were you know in the North Scotland had been signed from about twelve years of age, and as me as an under fifteen I'm not on a form, so of course everyone would like to sign me because I was the only possibility left so um so yeah, I think. I think that various players at the club at that time thought, oh, here's the new Johnny-come-lately. <laughs> um, let's see what he's got. And um, they'd rather think ill of you before they know you, um, which was also some sort of safety mechanism from them. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, of course, you you have to get on with it. And you, you this 15-year-old stroke 16 is in a dressing room with probably 21 year olds have not played in spurs reserves yet
0: when you look back at that apprenticeship it, it almost sounded like national service you know arriving at nine after a two-hour journey sweep up hang the kid up clean the boots clean the toilets then then at the end of the day you have an inspection it's almost a military inspection uh, and then all your kits thrown in the middle of the uh, changing rooms the last one to get dressed and out as to actually do the bins over to the incinerator
2: yeah well that's I, I think the military discipline was evident in most things in that era and therefore all the trainers all the coaches Bill Nicholson the manager had come through the military service in some way some had fought in wars of course and therefore you know they knew that everyone had to pull together and your job as an apprentice professional is to keep this place spick and span and uh, a pride in it and a pride in your own work and Johnny Wallace the, the, the trainer that looked after us apprentices and, and, and made those decisions at the end of the day who's gonna be the last one out of here um, he, he was a very disciplined guy and you had to toe the line and do it right and and he had a talk with us one day and he said listen I believe that you young footballers will play how you work. And if you work, while you're working, if you cheat, you will probably cheat me on a Saturday. Be it you don't take up the right position where we've decided you'll stand defending corners, etc, etc. You have to listen to instructions and you have to take the instructions and we give you the base of what we want you to do and then, guess what? Your ability carries you through off the back of that. So, um, it really was about, you know, when you think about the, the, the military of, of keeping your shoes shined and your buckles polished and be on parade at the right time and, you know, c- keep a discipline about you, how you look and what you think of the place where you work. Don't undersell it, don't undervalue it. Just. Just be part of this, and then guess what? You, you've got a nice base to, 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 to start your career from. And, and I tend to agree with that. I, I, I really do. I think that uh, these days we're a bit soft on young players, young professionals. Mm-hmm. They, they, they really do get things a bit too easy, and before they've really done too much in the game, and uh I, I'm actually proud of the era that I came through and I'm I'm very lucky to have to have had people guiding me in the way they did. And of course it was tough, of course it was hard. Of course you went home on with only one sock on, because if you'd have searched for your second sock, you'd have <laughs> had to have been going over in the you know, the darkness into that east stand to find the incinerator where, it, you know, probably rats around or mice at least. And you didn't want to be there. So you, you didn't bother about your last sock. You just wanted to get out of that building and get on that bus and on that train and get home and get go to bed because that's what you needed after a long day. You needed your bed.
0: December the 21st, 1968. It's your 17th birthday. Bill Nicholson has you into the office to sign you. Uh, no agents, just a signing process. You're about to get 18 pounds a week Uh, but he still made you wait a bit
2: let let me take you back round about the Christmas time as per 21st of December my birthday Bill Nicholson says to me Steve we're going to sign you professional and this is the best the best line you could have from your manager you are you've got through those two years of working and graft and and turmoil and worrying about injuries and you're you're young and you're naive to this game. And you're getting a little bit of harsh treatment for for a while, just for a while, from the senior ones. Not not the first team. They they really didn't know anything about you. This would be young pros that have been through the, the hard system as well. And uh he said, Well Phil and he knew that me and Phil were mates. Phil Holder is uh seventeen next month mid mid january so uh we're going to wait for him to get 17 and we'll sign you together eh? so i said yeah great that's fine so take your question to mid january now so i've waited an extra month for phil to be 17 as well and I go in first and I sign and I'm delighted to sign and I'm not gonna ask questions about how much or whatever, but you've, when you're signed in the form, you're looking at the figure, which is 18 pounds a week and go out, shake hands. Then he gives you some messages to, to sort of enter the professional world with. Probably, you know, this is the start. It's not the finish. You've not made it. You're just one more step up the ladder, etc., etc. et cetera. Et cetera. And uh, Phil goes in and signs his bit of paper and walks out. And then we go out onto the high road and we've got no more jobs to do. We're free of the shackles of cleaning boots and hanging kit up, etc, etc. And we get on the bus like we've done for the previous two years to Manor House. And he says, go on, Ed. How much? So I said, by surprise, Phil, obviously the same as you. we got 18 pounds. <coughs> 17. <laughs> so, <laughs> so Bill Nick had nipped a pound off of Phil. And uh, that, that was Bill Nick. You, you had to earn every pound that, that he gave you. And um, he almost thought that you should pay to play for Tottenham Hotspur <laughs> to have the honour for putting on that white shirt with that famous cockle on the ball. You should be paying for this, not not earning money for it. So um uh so whenever I tell that story, and I told the story the other night in Wilsden, Phil was from Kilburn, by the way. He doesn't live there now, but although no, he wished he he wished he was these days. And he he um Phil was there because Phil was gonna give me a lift home afterwards. And uh Phil's comment at the end of my story was that Bill Nick weren't a bad judge, was he? He said he played 800-odd games. I played about 20 for Spurs. He had 19 years. I had about four. So uh, what he was saying was Bill Nick had recognised at that age, giving me 18 and him 17, that I was going to be the player. If only one of us was going to make it, it would be me. So typical Phil, um, if I, uh, I, I've spoke long and and lovingly about this fella. Um, Five foot three, heart of gold, solid as a rock, as tough as they come, one of 12, 12 children. And if people think that I ended up a leader, until I was about 20, this fella led me. So he almost took the baton on from my eldest brother Ted, that we've spoken about, into Showing me the way, giving me an opinion, and uh, seeing what it is to to lead. He w- Phil Holder was captain of the FA Youth Cup winning team that had Perryman and Suness in the team, and Phil Holder was the captain. I mean, wh- what does that say about him? So uh, an- another one that I have high regard for and uh, helped me um, to to finish up how I did.
0: Uh, You mentioned Souness there. He famously had a bit of a moan to Bill Nicholson about not breaking into the first team, uh, to which he responded, Perriman works twice as hard as you do. Mullery and Peters are England internationals. How do you intend to break in past those two? Uh, Your debut, though, was soon to come, September 27th, 1969, against Sunderland.
2: Sure, I spoke to Graham about this. I met him in a restaurant in Portugal um, last year. And he said, Steve, if, remember, Graham was a year younger than me, and a year at that age is a lot in terms of your development and stuff. And he said, Steve, if someone had just sat me down and said, Graham, you're a good player, you're not ready yet, be patient, your time will come. Um, in in terms of explanation of where he sat in amongst it all, and as a as a young player, you need that. Um, probably, probably in the modern era, they are explained too much about their situation, and and all the bases try to be covered with their agent and their mother and father, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. In our era, you were told virtually zero. And as I said to Graham, Graham, listen, I was in the team. I wasn't explained anything, so so how can you be explained it out of the team? So, um, uh, but I, I quite like the thought of uh, Perryman and Sunes being in the same midfield, uh, for, particularly for Tottenham. Nobody else, and Glenn Hoddle emerging and and being in the middle of us with with regard to his his capabilities in amongst ours. So um, that would have been quite a a situation, I think. And yes, the the debut came. The debut came. I worked hard enough. Um, I wasn't particularly... um, Of course I wanted to play. And you're not fit, unfit at school. You certainly add to your fitness when you go to a professional club. You've got this discipline in you. Um, My first... The day I walked in, they said, if you play it quick easy and accurate, you do well here. And that's that suited my game. I, I, I wasn't quick enough to run past anyone with the ball. I could run off the ball past them. Um, but I wasn't a dribbler as such. I was a, a get-the-ball-and-pass-it. And, pass it. and I, I needed to pass the ball to the first option that I saw. And um, therefore, I was quite easy to play with. And Tottenham team when i got my debut needed someone like me so i suppose what i had made me selectable in those circumstances the, the team was started to fail they started to lose home games which was unheard of in in bill Nick's sort of era and um i suppose i came in i make the quote that they they had too many chiefs and not enough indians well they could all play um, they needed a, a sort of an Indian or two around the place to 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 put their foot in and win the ball and 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 pass it on simply as Bill Nick wanted and Eddie Bailey wanted so um it was It was actually set up for me and and i 'm sure that the the players deserved a chance um before they eventually got it at nineteen or twenty one but the gap has to be there for you to walk into or run into or or yeah uh, work yourself into um you know there, there, there's some luck involved in when you get your break and and how you take it because if you fail miserably on your first day be it that game against sunderland where we lost one nil if i'd have failed miserably and my game had suffered and my head went down and and the crowd didn't like me and and i i got criticized which you know they're, they're too good a crowd to have done that to to a debutant but um uh, you know, it's so it's so important that first game, and and I, I I'm never going to forget Bill Nick for giving me my chance, and um, you know when someone with the statue of Bill Nicholson puts you in his first team, my word, that is that's a feather in your cap, and um, not that I got carried away with it. I knew I was there for the for the right reason to work and and um, I think i i say in the book that i kept my mouth shut for about 18 months not on the field because my game was 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 partly built on passing on information passing on the ball and passing on information and um uh but uh, in the hotels on the trains on the buses on the airplanes i and of course in a team, there's a lot of banter and there's a lot of mickey taking and stuff. Yeah, yeah. I decided not to enter that race. Just you've got two eyes, you've got two ears, only one mouth. Just, just now listen.
0: That, that team, that team you were you were put into. Pat Jennings, uh, Cyril Knowles, Mike England, Martin Peters, Mullery, Chivers, Gilsey, and you're on route to the first trophy win as well in the League Cup against Villa. Uh, two, goals to, two, two goals from Mario Chivers, I think, on, the, on that day. Great second goal, that by Chivers. But yes. what? How, how did you feel stepping out at Wembley Stadium in front of 100,000 people for your very first taste of the big, big time?
2: Well, it's like you're, um, I mean, there's step-ups to everything. There's playing for my school team and then playing for the Ealing District team. Then, guess what, I finish up, through Middlesex and London, I finish up at Wembley in the international schoolboys team. And then I'm playing for Spurs youth team. And, you know, just the fact you're playing for Spurs, you're treated different. You walk along the high road and people are saying hello to you that you don't know. And you are, we won the FA Youth Cup for instance, and we're lauded for that. And then I get, of course I got my debut first, but you you, you're, you're taking these small steps upwards all the time and guess what the next step up is going to be number one i'm going to be picked not for just my debut game i'm going to get picked regularly and then because it's a good club with very very good players and a great manager there is a chance of us winning something which i never thought was possible when i was making my debut for instance It was just about doing well and getting the first game under my belt and getting a win, hopefully, which we didn't. But of course it developed. Um, Jimmy Greaves played in my debut game and Jimmy unfortunately was swapped about six months later with Martin Peters. And then, you know, the team evolves and Bill Nicholson, with all his experience, is going to make the next team. And the next team was coming in the early 70s and we won... Two League Cups, the one you mentioned, Martin Chivers, two goals. Um, uh, following, uh, well, we got to the semi-final the next year, almost got to the final again. And then the year after, won it again. So that would have been three years on the spin, we're at Wembley. And then the UEFA Cup. And this stuff Not... just keeps coming at me. It's coming and coming and coming, and there's more coming. Mm-hmm and you are being spoken about in good terms and he should be picked for the under 23s and Bill Nick held me back from that because he thought I had too much going on in my life to to cope with that as well. So, um, but it was like a roller coaster of things happening to this young player, not only me, to the team. Um, But because I hadn't tasted it before it was all so special to me, and just the chance to play at Wembley again. I mean, I driving from my house in Northolt to, to Tottenham, along the North Circular Road, I, I drove past Wembley every day. Every single training day, I could see the Twin Towers from the North Circular. And, you know, eventually I'm playing there, and all my friends and my family are watching me play at this great stadium. And... Wow. I mean, it's all been downgraded these days because it's too normal to play at Wembley. But in my era, my word, you were lucky. If you, you, Some great players have never played at Wembley in a cup final. Uh,
0: Bill Nicholson said, without Europe, you're nothing. Now, the UEFA Cup was very, very different in the early days. It was the first year uh, that it had ever been in that uh, context because it was previously the Intercities Fairs Cup. What was Fairs it like cup. for you? To go to Eastern Europe, and then to start to go and visit these places that you'd maybe never ever visited before.
2: Well, again, it's an extra step up. You are you're delighted to play at places like Norwich and Ipswich and and Southampton and etc. You're going to places that you'd never been to before, and then because of the League Cup win. We're now in the, the UEFA Cup. And being drawn, I mean, the excitement of, of being able to visit these places was was amazing. And, and my father, remember I said he went from the coal industry, coal delivery man, to Heathrow, working for Air France. Well, he could go anywhere in the world for 10%. So my father is following me in Europe. And we were very successful in Europe. Over the course of the first three years, I think I played 35 games, someone mentioned to me. And these are not like you would be playing today in group stages. So even if you lost the first one and you lost the second one, you still got two more to play and you might get out of trouble if you win those two. These were on on a knockout basis. So it's obvious how successful we were. And this is like the, the, the continuance of the dream happening. Playing at Wembley, winning League Cup finals, now in Europe, being successful in Europe. We, we we had a way of playing under Bill Nicholson and Eddie Bailey. We had long throws from Martin Chivers that, that, that took the, the foreigners by surprise. Well, it shouldn't do because they should have been scouting us. But we had a near post corner that I took to Gilly for a flick on that they just couldn't cope with. Probably because of Gilly's ability in the air, not my ability to deliver the right ball. You know, we had overlapping fullbacks, Cyril Knowles and, and Joe Kinnear, uh, and Ray Evans, for instance. And and this was all stuff that on a day where well, you're not going to play great every time, but on the day where you were struggling, these these things would be the plus for you, would be the asset for you to get you through. And it it wasn't all great games, but, you know. We won, by the away goal in Setchul, I think, and uh, we won a very tough game in in um, in Nantes, I think. So, um, uh, yeah, we 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 had the style, we had the aggression of the English game that everyone was so was so admiring of. We had the discipline because of the eras that we'd come through. We had the manager that knew what what European football was about and and his assistant, Eddie. And therefore, we we were a good product in Europe. And that's why our results were so good. And, you know, even when we went out one year, it was on the away goals to Liverpool in the semi-final stage. So we were more than worthy. Um, Our problem was, our problem in that era was that we were not consistent enough as a league team and therefore we could do it we could do it when it really, really mattered, which was shown by our cup results. And um we couldn't do it consistently. And that was always always a, a, a problem for Bill Nick because we'd 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 lose to a, a very average team on a Saturday and we'd go away in the week and, and get a magnificent result away to Cologne or somewhere like that where no one had won for the last sort of 15 years so yeah um but it, hey, it, it, don't, it was don't forget
0: th- don't forget though there was your fine contribution in that game against milan
2: yes yes in the semi-finals
0: um, wasn't it? that was the uh, the team of rivera and romeo bernetti
2: snellinger from the germany 66 world cup uh Cudicini, that's the father of the the goalkeeper that eventually played for for spurs um, so, this young player now—it's it, sort of strange to talk about myself, but this, this is about me, I suppose, in my book. So, yeah. this young player now—that's that's—you know—made the steps up through Wembley, etc., through the league system, through Bill Nicholson's selection, and and all of this stuff—is now playing against AC Milan, Gianni Rivera. Wow. well, wow. On the same pitch as this man. And of course, I was on the same pitch as some world-class players in Martin Peters and Alan Mullery and Pat Jennings and Mike England and Martin Chivers, etc. So, so of course, we had a chance. And, uh, but in that era, the Italians were so renowned for their strong defensive play. And you play at home in the first leg at White Hart Lane, and we go a goal down to Bonetti. Well, it's a wonderful strike from the edge of the box. And you had to be some player to score past Pat Jennings. Well, he did. So um, uh, now, of course, they're going to drop back and they're going to defend their goal and they could be tough and they could be rough, and sometimes against the laws of the game as such, but they, you know, you're going to score over our dead body. We've got the advantage here. We've got the away leg. You are not going to score. And um, I suppose that's the sort of type of day where something strange has got to happen. And nothing more strange than Steve Perryman scoring two goals. So... um, I'm renowned at Tottenham. I have a goal-scoring record that that will surprise you because I scored at least one league goal for 17 seasons. That does say nothing for the amount of goals I scored other than the length of time (laughs) that I played the game or was selected to play the game. So to score two goals in one game was just... Everyone has his game. And that was my game. I I scored from the edge of the box in the first half to level it up. That made the half-time talk a bit more, um, not pleasant, because Bill Nick wasn't, wasn't that harsh. We, we, we Although we went a goal down, we weren't playing badly by any means. It was a very cold, blustery night. And and second half was, was more us. They had set themselves to defend, as the Italians did in that era. And they could do it very well and the closer that Chivers got or Mike England got or Alan Gilzine got or Martin Peters got, wow, their body took a, a testing. And um so this corner goes in, gets headed out. I think I'm more protecting the halfway line than than imagining that I've got a chance to do something sort of in the positive sense. Comes out to me and I, I just touch it forward and I think the wind was was, was helping me at the time. And I decided to have a crack. And I'd like to think that I chose the the, the bottom right-hand corner, which is the only place where it could have gone in. Um, basically, I just tried to get a good strike on the ball and um, ended up scoring. And therefore, we won the game 2-1. And a uh, fantastic night for me. And uh, so, uh, I mean... First, first
0: club that, as well, by the way, weren't they, Tottenham to win two European trophies?
2: Yes, yeah, Bill Nicholson. That's that's credit to his management and stuff. We we we. So we get through the AC Milan game with a fine away uh, one one draw. Alan Mullery Mallory, Mallory, Mallory scored. Alan Mullery that that was a big moment for him because he got he, he was on loan at Fulham and got brought back into the team for the AC Milan First League, and uh, uh, because of injuries and. Uh, it was touch and go whether he'd be allowed to play but he was allowed to play and then he 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 scored the goal in Milan that got us through and then he scored the vital goal in the um in the two-leg final the vital goal martin chivers scored a, a big goal in the away leg but uh so you know that that was alan muller's sort of swan song before he left the club so well done him and um you know that I, I played for some great captains at Tottenham. I, I, I saw Mackay from afar being a young player, but I saw the influence he had on the team. I When I got into the team, Alan Mullery was captain and then Martin Peters took over from him. So uh, I saw some wonderful people, characters, captains, leaders. And um, so I, I think I picked up a little bit from all of those. But in the end, you can only do it your way. But your way is... Influenced by what you've seen happen around you in in those early developing years, as such.
0: Yeah, there was there were changing times for Tottenham around then as well. I mean, you did go on to get back into the UEFA Cup final. It was the infamous night in in Rotterdam, of course. Bill Nicholson was struggling a bit to adapt uh, to the changing times. You know, the money, the media, the agents, etc. Uh, he thought that you were on your way out. Uh, then he left, and in comes a 34-year-old ex-Arsenal man, uh, Terry Neill. Was one good decision, I suppose, in those early days is that he bought Keith Birkinshaw in with him.
2: Well, I'd like to think there was a second uh, uh, good decision because at, at the time of Bill Nicholson leaving, um, he had decided that I maybe wasn't going to be the player that everyone thought I was. And, and there was a, a move afoot for me to go to Coventry. And Bill Nicholson... Um, Uh, said to me listen you know I've never thought about selling you um, but I've asked the team a club for two players and they've asked for you back what do you think and I was sort of going through a bit of an iffy spell my my confidence was a bit low and and I said yes I've listened and he couldn't believe my answer he said I suggest you go home and think about that answer you've just given me so I said, well, Bill, to be honest, you, you're asking me the question. So that there must be a reason for that. So um, anyway, I did go back the next day. I did reconfirm that I was, yeah, I'd think about a move. And uh, he said, OK, go and train. I'll speak to you later. Well, he didn't speak to me later. And we go home. I am still sort of in the dark as per what may or may not happen. And Bill Nicholson resigned that night so i think that was left for terry Neal then the new manager to deal with and uh, the first session that he had he pulled me aside and said steve uh, i've heard about the the coventry city possible move and uh, just to let you know you're going nowhere so in a way that was that was good for me that that he was showing some confidence in me sorry that. Really sorry that Bill Nick had resigned. I hope I didn't add to his uh, his stress levels or his worries or his fears about the team or me at that particular time. And then uh, Terry Neal brought in uh, Keith Birkinshaw, as you quite rightly say. Um, They had no link, actually. I've asked Keith about this, and the only link was that Terry Neal, within playing against Keith Birkinshaw's Newcastle, liked the way that they attempted to play. And therefore, when needed a coach, Keith was on his list, and it didn't stem from any sort of meeting before or meeting of minds or or, 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 or beliefs. Uh, just just what the product was that he was trying to produce at Newcastle. So, um, but you know, people always want to speak negatively to me about Terry Neil, and I think it's to do with his Arsenal sort of background. But in terms of, I I was at a confidence low when he took over. And he did nothing. He did nothing but help me in my personal game. He opened up sort of avenues for me to think a bit more positively, uh, to run forward more. Don't always play behind the ball. So I I am always grateful to Terry Neal what he what he gave me personally. And supporters I know are judging on what the team did or didn't do. Um, but from my personal point of view, I, I really enjoyed sort of working for him and stuff, and he showed a sort of belief in me that was that was good. That was sort of uh, on the downer, if you like, for for a couple of years before that. So, um, but Keith, Keith, uh, I actually didn't get on with Keith from day one. Um, he came in and, and and tried to get across his style and whatever, and we played a pre-season game and somebody made a change of play to me on the touchline and they hit about a 60 yard ball we were playing uh, yeah this preseason game in a lovely stadium i think stuttgart or somewhere or maybe hamburg and uh, as the ball was on its flight to me uh, i'm right by the touchline in front of the bench and keith called out about 20 instructions to me before the ball arrived at me and by the time it came and i had this poor touch and it went out of play I looked at Keith on the touchline and I said, I know how to play. (laughs) 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 So it was a bit sort of cutting, probably a, a bit like my mum would have been to me over the years and my brothers. I know how to play. And anyway, so we, we didn't start off on a great foot, but eventually we, we became partners in crime of of uh, being part of leading the team that went down and got relegated. You
0: said uh, in the book, by the way, about the, the time in Division 2, as it was known then, uh, that it was the most enjoyable season of your career.
2: Yeah. Well, I... Um, when we... Knew we were going to get relegated. Keith decided to put me in the back line and therefore we started to play with me bringing the ball out. Get the ball off the keeper, short, and bring it out. And And when I let go of the ball, you're trying to free up a midfield player that I would have appreciated for me if, if someone was serving with me the ball from the back line. Um, I've played with certain players who've passed me the ball in midfield. And as they do it, I mean, this is an image. They sort of rub their hands as though to say, well, that's my job over. Well, actually, it's not. I want some information on that ball and, and I want some angle on the ball to be able to use it, etc., cetera, et cetera. So if anyone could serve a ball into midfield, it was me. Because I'd had a number of years uh, playing in that sort of jungle of midfield pressure and um, that's that I, I really do believe that that year in the second division was was an eye-opener it made the game it was like reading a book the game became so simple um, probably less pressurized because I was out of the midfield sort of uh, hustle bustle um, of course my defensive qualities would be called into action because in the back line you're going to ask be asked to defend one of my strengths is that I um, I was able to to spot danger and even if there's that's a danger but that over there is a danger but actually that's the bigger danger and um, you have to make those decisions on the back line and um, but it was so positive as per my use of the ball and I developed That was my best year of development as a football player in terms of my understanding, my knowledge, my creativity and my confidence. And um, guess what? Glenn Hoddle was the young player in there that was being helped by my service of the ball. I wasn't just playing a straight ball and playing to him marked. I was trying to free him up and give him it on the angle that he could just let it run and... And pick out a forward ball and stuff. So um, it was Tottenham. Tottenham returning back to good football, albeit in a lower division. The good football was getting us results. Was getting us crowds. Was was getting the belief back from the supporters to the into the team, into the manager that had helped get us relegated. As I was captain, I helped get us relegated. I played forty-two out of forty-two games in that relegation year. So. Um, it was a real freshness brought to my game. And again, people say, How did you play so many games? How did you, you know, how did you keep fresh uh, to be able to play 800 odd games? And part of that was changing managers, which you don't ever want to happen, but actually, the nature of the game is that managers do change. They get old, they get stale, they pass on and um change of position and so i've got a different view on the pitch of of different angles and uh, and and ways of 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 passing the ball or receiving the ball and um so yeah I, i i think that second that year in the second division reinvigorated my my ability
0: so the summer of 1978 you get up one morning bring your tea and toast with the paper back up to bed flick to the back page spurs scoop the world is the headline and unbeknown to you or anybody else in terms of the playing stuff keith berkenshaw after communication with harry haslam and his then argentinian coach up sheffield was alerted to some of the players involved in the world cup wanted to come to europe to play and off he went to buenos aires signed ozzy ardiles was offered his friend ricky Vieira, and brought him along for the ride as well and there was another surprise name as well who was assisting in the movement of these players from Argentina to Europe.
2: Yeah, yeah. Apparently the big man that helped it all uh, go smoothly out there was uh, Rattan. Rattan being the man who um, famously, uh, Alf Ramsey went on the pitch sixty-six, with someone was going to swap shirts with him. And because... Alf Ramsey thought Alf Ramsey called them the animals, didn't he that Argentina team, oh yeah,
0: yeah yeah,
2: and uh, he was the sort of biggest culprit of it, and it probably captain, but I'm not quite sure about that and um but rattan was 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 a sort of a go between, and um Keith said he was the nicest man'd ever met and um, and helped it go smoothly and Ozzy owned up to me the other day that Keith was very clever. And I said, so why was that? He said, because he never told me or Ricky that the team had just got promoted back into the top league. So I said, so what difference would that have made? He said, well, I wouldn't have signed. <laughs> so so Keith, <laughs> Keith was very clever. Number one, keeping it quiet, even from me. And in that spell, we... Keith and I would be on the phone for at least an hour every Sunday talking about the game and the performance and the training or what we needed or what we didn't need and what we should keep going. And uh, he did not confide in me as per this signing. Um, Well done. Um, Therefore it was such a surprise when I picked the the paper up that famous morning and saw the headline that we'd scoop the world with our dealers. I, I knew all about our dealers from watching the World Cup. I didn't know so much about Ricky Villa, but uh, soon was going to know about him. So um, uh, you know, Keith is is a, is a, similar to Bill Nick. is a dour Yorkshireman, and um, you know believes in certain things and manners of doing things. And uh, you know, he's not so flamboyant as, what, as other managers of that era. What was and the
0: yet- What was the mood though when you kicked off that season? And you've had all of the press and the build-up. And the first home game, you get beat 4-1 by Villa. And then a couple of weeks later, it was up to Anfield, and you were beaten 7-0, that infamous game there. I always remember, by the way, Jerry Armstrong telling me a story about that game. He said, we were 6-0 down. He said, and I'd had a rut with Birkenshaw. He said, and Berkey turned to me and said, "Uh, Jerry, uh, time for you to go on. He said, and I looked at him. I said, Keith, you can... Go and well, <laughs> do <he won>. one. <laughs> one. But, yeah. you know, you, you had all those positive headlines and then almost immediately this dose of reality.
2: Yeah. Names, names don't win games. And that was proven. Um, we were... Ozzy says, this might be harsh from Ozzy's point of view, that when he signed for Spurs, him and Ricky joined us in a a sports camp in Holland. He said, and after two days, we decided that this team has only got two players, Perryman, the captain, and Hoddle. And the rest are sort of average. Well, he might have seen them from a sort of, uh, maybe a negative point of view as per, of course, we'd had the confidence building of getting to a new division um, but perhaps they were all fearful of their places because now surely the club is going to sign some new players including these Argentinians um, to make us good enough to, to, to compete be, be competitive in, in the top division so um, uh, yeah we remember we had the 1-1 draw at Champions Forest and the Spurs supporters went up in their hordes uh, to support us we're back in the big league and Ricky scores the goal that gets us the 1-1 draw so guess what all this hope and anticipation is now added to because we in those days with two points for a win you go away and get a draw you're 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 on course and we we did it at Brian Clough's forests which is not an easy thing to do so of course, we come home and the, 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 the fanfare is now, is now stronger. And, um, of course, we got brought very much down to earth with a bang, with a 4-1 defeat by Villa. And, uh, as you say, then we go to Anfield and lose seven. And, you know, a team that's going to find your weaknesses or whether you're equipped yet to, to be competitive in the top league would be Liverpool. And they, they sort well. They ripped us apart. One one of the goals they scored, I think it was the last one, probably Jerry Armstrong's fault, was um, <laughs> was uh, you know us having a corner and then breaking and about three passes later, uh, McDermott scoring on the far post. Hell of a goal. So it really was welcome back to the top league, and welcome to English football for our Deleuze and Via and welcome back to reality for this team that had got promoted out of division two by playing good football and you think that's going to take you into the top league just playing that football and and not defending good enough etc etc so um so it, it was a wake-up call for us all and it's obvious that um these two new players had to be integrated into the team for instance, they would get in positions where an English player would be crossing the ball and the typical English forward would be making a run across the near post or pulling out for the back post or whatever. And Ozzie and Ricky were not crossing the ball. So it's obvious until you work those things out, who's, who's going to adapt to who? And um, it probably took, um, you know, I'd, I'd say a year, but it was probably more than a year for us all to sort of integrate together off the field and on the field and be on the same page, which any team that's going to be successful needs to be. So, um, you know, I started to speak before about Keith, um lack of being the flamboyant manager by any means in his in his clothes he wore or, or how he spoke to the press or whatever. He didn't make any big big calls or, or promises. But uh, this man ended up putting together such a team full of flair yet could defend And it was off the back of those two signings from Argentina and the problems that we took on board because of it. And um, that Keith was shown the way of what he needed to do. And he needed to to go and buy some strikers and to tighten up at the back. And, you know, that wasn't all big money signings. Yes, Archibald and Crooks, a, a, a very good partnership with goals in them. Um, but also the emergence of Glenn Hoddle and therefore what type of players were needed at the front and the way that Glenn was going to marry up with with Ricky and Glenn in, uh, and Ozzie in midfield etc because there weren't too much defensiveness in there especially from Ricky and, and Glenn Hoddle Ozzie was a, a, a buzzy player worker that would always do his, more than his fair share um, but um but Galvin and Roberts, for instance, from non-league. So it was a it was a combination of all these things together, plus the homegrown part of it, which was me, Miller, uh, Chrissy Hewton, uh Falco was part of that squad, for instance. So, so there was an element of everything: world-class players, Glen Hoddle, of course, uh, homegrown. So the World Cup stars, plus the homegrowns, plus the non-leaguers coming in very hungry, plus the two bits of quality in the front. And that team went on to do really good things.
0: Well, it went on to do magnificent things, because from 80-81, you win the Centenary Cup final uh, with Manchester City, and it came... Uh, at a time when you literally were almost living at Wembley. I mean, you had the two cup final appearances against Manchester City, you had the Charity Shield, you were back in the League Cup against Liverpool the following year, then another two FA Cup finals against Queen's Park Rangers with the replay, then back in the Charity Shield again. Uh, it was an amazing time for for Tottenham fans, uh, and of course you, because you become very famous on television uh, when you appear with the rest of the team in the epic top of the Pops edition, which had Aussies uh, Dream. I mean, you were on uh, next to Shaking Stevens and Kim Wilde. Not a bad I sandwich know. to be in. <laughs> I
2: know. Well, we we appeared at Wembley seven times in 18 months.
0: It's incredible.
2: And, you know, having, having tasted the disappointment and the embarrassment of relegation, you know, first part of my career, Wembley appearances, middle part relegation, lack of confidence, a downgrade in my own personal game, then the rebuild of not only me but also of the team. And uh again, you know, the 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 Blue Peter uh appearance or the top of the pops this was sort of the icing on the cake if you like because it had uh, never
0: been hadn't been done before had it really there was no no fa cup final songs Uh, and there you are in the top 10
2: you look back and you think it was all a little bit silly you know if you have your time again maybe we wouldn't have done that but you know (laughs) what it was all part of if if we hadn't have been successful then it would have Got put in the trash bin and, and forgotten about, and no one mentioned it. You know, you can imagine having a, a cup final song, and you lose the cup final. And we were so close to losing that cup final. Um, you know, the the in off uh, Tommy Hutchinson that, that that got us the draw in a game that we didn't deserve to draw. A very disappointing final. Um, so, all this razzmatazz is great if you deliver on the field, and. Um, you know, sometimes I see it in a more individual way with with players that all of a sudden became become more than the player. They become like a household name, and I think you could you could look at the example of the goalkeeper um, that played for England and started to do the head and shoulders uh, advert, <laughs> and all of a sudden his career went into sort of spiraling downwards. And I'm not suggesting he's a bad man or anything, but you know once you lose your focus once you lose that focus and and you know probably um i i was part of instigating some of that stuff that was going on as captain of the of this group of players um but i also thought i was part of keeping it in control and um and getting back to basics on the training ground which is what it's about it's about us Trying to make a new history for Tottenham because, you know, whenever you sign for Tottenham Hotspur, be you Archibald or Crooks or whoever, Ralph Coates, or you're going to be the, the history is going to be pushed down your throat and you'll never be as good as that. And I think the 60 61 team were told before they became, you know, the team, they would never be as good as the 50 51 team. And some people still hold that hold that true that that was a better team that push and run team than the the team that won the double well i'm not sure how that can be but but it's people's opinion and therefore the seventy seventy one 71 team mm, no not as good as the other two and the eighty eighty one team well okay yeah you won some cups but not not as good as them and, well, and, and that's what keeps Tottenham going and, and uh, that's why I think winning trophies at Tottenham is so important of course you've got to pay and play in Europe like Bill Nicholson said of course you have the name of Tottenham deserves to be there but guess what your football's got to get there your name won't get you there
0: tell me where you were on the pitch the moment that Ricky Villa picked up that ball on that FA Cup final replay night and How much of a view did you have of his meandering run to goal?
2: Well, I was in the box for all the goals that we scored. Um, I played at right back towards the end of my career. And I was, of course, I could defend, but I was also very much um, up for, I, I almost played wing back within the right back position. So the game is at a vital stage, and we need to, of course, you need to not concede, but if you can get a goal, then then great, so, so I was seeing all this happen from the other side of the field, and it was building up with, with Tony, and then he turns back in Tony Galvin and, and passes it to Ricky, and Ricky's now on the run, and I'm sort of edging, but with with also fear what if this breaks down because when Ricky went on runs it could turn out exactly like it did or he could lose possession and uh, you know that was part of Ricky's game he he was prepared to take a risk well from a right back position I want a risk but with other things in my mind as well what if it breaks down so um, the more it happened the more People, we went past the closer I was going to get to the goal because maybe the goalie was going to save it maybe it was going to hit the post and come out and I could be the hero and score the goal so um, but I like everyone else in the stadium was saying shoot shoot <laughs> Rick, shoot <laughs> and of course eventually he scores and um, brilliant what, what a moment what a feeling it's not all over of course this good Man City team were going to attempt to get the goal back, and they nearly did. Um, but eventually, it turned our way, and we we finished up the, the the cup winners. And I think that was the moment where it's all right signing ideas and via. It's all right looking like a star-studded team. You you're not until you win a trophy. And when we won that trophy, we were back on the big stage. And and I've met people all over the world that at that moment when Ricky scored that goal they were sort of 9, 10, 11, 12 years of age be it living in New Zealand or Australia or Canada and saw that goal and from that moment on became Spurs supporters and that is how important that goal was not only at the time in England but and in terms of spreading the name of Tottenham and the style of Tottenham around the world.
0: You did two League Cups, you won two FA Cups 83-84, 83-84, it was coming out to be your second UEFA Cup. You had a great run uh, to the final uh, with one game in particular against Feyenoord where you describe it as the best you've ever seen a Spurs team of yours play. That was with uh, a very young Gullit and Johan Cruyff in that team. Uh, you beat Bayern Munich as well before getting on into that yeah. final. Um, and of course, we know the drum of the night. But that, that whole campaign culminating many moments of emotion there because it wasn't only about winning the UEFA Cup it was also the last game in charge of a man who had built that team
2: yeah and uh, over the years I'd, although it started off in the wrong manner um, I became very close to Keith and, and still we still speak two or three times a week Keith 84 years of age now the youngest looking 84 you'll ever see um, very bright in his mind and uh, Keith Keith sorta of suffered a bit from um the, the club went uh into a more business mode and whereas Bill Nick's way of running the club was similar to Keith's, but it was the time when the manager had total control and he decided if the laundry lady got a rise um in her wages or the tea ladies were Taken out for lunch at Christmas, etc. Bill Nick and Keith Bergenshaw decided all that stuff, and Keith was entering the era where owners of clubs wanted to be more than owners. They didn't want to own it and step back. They wanted to own it and step forward. And um, Keith told me that he had a he he, he wrote a log down one one period, and. The, the, the owner uh, Irvin scholar, phoned him thirty six times during the day <laughs> thirty six <laughs> times, telling him stuff that as a football manager, you knew a month ago that so and so might be available that there is a chance of a tour out to wherever japan at the end of the season, etc 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 and Keith could only answer, "I know." so many times and it was sort of wearing him down and um it was obvious that they didn't like this style of management uh very honest said it as did bill nick said it how it was and um so there had to be a part of the ways and I, I i was disappointed to hear that they told keith that he wouldn't be retained um before we played the quarter final game in austria and you know when this manager is supposed to be preparing his team to win a game, to go into the semi-final. And so the, these people came from a different era, and they they just we I struggle I struggle with it as well, to be honest. And this particular man, scholar, he he, and everyone would say that he was a football nut, and he was. He he could name facts and figures of victories and stuff. From books that doesn't make you a football judge it makes you a, 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 a memory uh, of football um, he thought he was a judge and uh, I got a call one day to return to the club uh, to speak to Irving Scholar when I got back there in the afternoon after training he pointed out to me that the new stand was nearly finished the new West stand and I said yeah great he said well you know the place where you have to park while this stand was being built we couldn't park in the car park we had to park up the high road uh, about two or three hundred yards up on the right behind the garage that was there then and he said I said yeah he said well you're gonna to have to keep parking there when the stand is finished so I said why why would that be He said because um we've got seventy two private boxes now and we're going to give every private box to two car parking spaces, so there'd be no place for the players. So I said, well, imagine coming from the Bill Nicholson era and having to listen to that. I I never said that. I'm just thinking it and I'm asking your opinion. Anyway, so I said, well, have you got a pen and paper? Why? I said, because you might as well have my transfer request, because if that's the way this club is going, I don't think you've got a great future. So, OK, he didn't do it. Of course, the players could park in the car park instead of sort of running the gauntlet through the supporters, um, you know, 10 minutes before you're supposed to be in the, the, the stadium to attend a meeting before the game, etc. And sign autographs to the supporters on your way to, to, to get into the stadium. So, um, uh, yeah, it, it, times were changing. Times were changing. And Keith suffered with the change I suppose and the famous quote of Keith looking back and saying in the victory of the Andelek game you know there used to be a football club there and I I wouldn't disagree with that.
0: When you look back at that UEFA Cup winning squad and the teams that played Clements who was on the bench in the second leg you didn't play because you were suspended. Parks, Thomas Hewton, Roberts, Miller uh, Hazard, Archibald, Falco, Stevens, Galvin, Hoddle, and you all involved. It was an exceptional squad. And when you look at what has come since at Tottenham over the years, nothing has really come close to quite having the balance that Birkinshaw had with that squad.
2: Yeah, I think the major part was Keith, um, Keith decided. Um, Keith had some very interesting ideas on the game. Ever before the back pass rule, he made it a rule that a Tottenham youth team would not be allowed to the back line would not be allowed to pass the ball back to the keeper. So say your right back is under pressure in the corner flag the the, back, the rest of the back four couldn't assume that he was going to get there first and play it to the goalkeeper who was going to pick it up as used to happen the center backs would have to come back and support that player which is actually right isn't it it's, it's, you know you, you, you can't defend your goal by standing still with your fingers crossed hoping that your right back's going to defend it properly and that the goal is going to get you out of trouble in the end so he was He was a great advocate in young players developing at Tottenham Hotspur. And it it was about making them feel welcome and knowing their background and knowing their parents and making them feel part of this club. And I applaud him for that. And that victory against Anderlecht was was done with, as you said, Tony Parks in goal. Ray Clements apparently was fit but Keith didn't select him, he, p- he picked Tony Parks. I was suspended, Glenn was injured, Garth was injured, Aussie uh, really was injured, but he had to fill a place on the bench um, um, and probably had 10 minutes top whack in him. Um, so it was a victory for homegrown. Mickey Hazard come to the fore because no Aussie, no Glenn. Not only in that game, in, in some of the games leading up to the final. Paul Miller, Chrissie Hutton, sort of now becoming stalwarts. They, 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 were, they, were, they know how to win games.
0: Uh, Danny um, Thomas.
2: Danny Thomas, God bless him, who missed the penalty. Um, and I'll never forget that evening, sat on the touchline, the reaction to the crowd that when Danny Thomas missed his penalty, chanted his name all the way back to the halfway line. Almost a walk of shame when you've missed the penalty in your own stadium. And therefore, you know, your team is probably going to get beat because of that miss. Number one, how did that make Danny feel? And how did that make the people taking penalties after Danny feel? And I think that's where a crowd can be part of the success. It's obvious when they cheer and they they clap and they, they're appreciative and they're... But when you feel one with the crowd, there is no greater feeling. And at that moment, we all, I'm sat on the bench, I felt with the crowd. Danny Thomas felt with the crowd. The rest of the players in that line waiting to, having taken a penalty or about to take a penalty, felt part of the crowd. We were, that was a group win. And all those players sat up in the stand injured, they felt part of it as well. And. You know, that's what Tottenham lost when Keith Birkinshaw left the club.
0: Do you think that they could have gone on to win a Premier League title or a First Division title as it was then had Keith Birkinshaw stayed? Uh,
2: very difficult there. I, I said to Keith after the second uh, FA Cup win, Keith, listen, The crowd love you now. You've bought them two trophies. Um, Especially having recovered from the relegation. Whereas these days, you know, the manager surely wouldn't keep his job. Um, I think we need to become more of a league team. He said, what do you mean by that? I said, well, forgive the word, but I think we need to play a bit more like Arsenal. He said, explain that. So I said, well, on a bad day, Arsenal get a draw. On a bad day, we get beat by three goals. We need to be more consistent. Um, When we play well, we'll win by three goals, maybe four. But we need to be a bit more careful with how we play. He said, Steve, you would never be able to think that or say it if you were sat behind this desk and i sort of agree with him on that um, because tottenham you 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 have a style you have a way of playing and you have to adhere to that you have to pay respect to the past of the the echoes of bill nicholson and the, the double team and the push and run team and stuff so um, it's about adapting can you adapt to the modern game as such um, if Keith Burkinshaw had stayed, I think that I would have then be taken on the staff to keep the the Tottenham part rolling. The you, you know, as a captain, I would spend time with Aussie and Ricky, letting them know what it means to play for Tottenham Hotspur, and. The more changes you make, the more people you let go and stuff, then that's sort of lost. That gets watered down and gets type of lost. I think they could have almost had a a, um, a, a Liverpool boot room situation off the back of that uh, purple patch of results and trophies. And um, of course that the people have got to be good enough. I've got to be good enough to be a coach. If I'm not good enough, it's no good just loving Tottenham. Um, You know, but, but, but it's where Tottenham history and Tottenham way rules the roost. And that's why I think Liverpool have been so, so superior to others over the years that they retain that, that part of what the club means to the supporters on the Um, field and
0: that was the saddest aspect about it was to see a european trophy picked up and then keith Birkenshaw wandering off at the car park and out of the club and then your your career coming to an end which is where we'll end uh, boxing day 85 against west ham your last goal for spurs um last yeah. game in the league was the 3-1 loss to liverpool in march of 86 and you're 866th um, final game was the FA Cup loss to Everton, and then, as you say in the books, in the book, uh, there were no longer buys. You came in, you got changed, you picked up your stuff, and left. And I, I thought that was quite a sad moment—the the club after all that you'd given them, had just let you wander off into the night.
2: Yeah. The problem with, with all this is that if you speak your mind, like I did that day with regard to the car parking situation, at some point you're going to pay for that. And uh, pe- people that own clubs these days, I think, are okay, they're in it for their own reasons, which is great. And at least they've got the money to own a club, which I would never have. And therefore, it's all right me being clever with my judgments. Um, sometimes I think they need football people around them to be able to make better judgments than they make on their own. And um, part of it is the way that you say goodbye to someone. And uh, Pat Jennings tells a similar story. Um, Keith Birkenshaw sampled it. I sampled it. It's a loyalty works both ways. The club wants, should, well, if the club wants to keep you on and you, it suits you to stay on, then we're all loyal together. At some point, the player doesn't want to stay or the club doesn't want you to stay and it breaks up. So, uh, would I have left in those circumstances if it had been Bill Nicholson? Probably not. I mean... Yes, I'd have left, but uh not in that manner. Although Jimmy Greaves may tell you a different story than that. You know, you know, you never quite know the situation unless it's involved involving you. So um I mean, when it's goodbye, it's goodbye. That's that's the fact of the matter. Um, was I sad to go? Yes I was. Uh was I sad to leave when I got shown the door by Alan Sugar some years later no i wasn't i was i i should have been the fact that i was leaving the club that i love but um you know because of the atmosphere there because of the environment under this type of ownership i was actually pleased to get out the door and um and i'm happier to walk back through that door these days i have to say um but i actually fell out of love with both uh tottenham hotspur and football at that point when Aussie got shown the door, and then eventually I did, which was no surprise. Um, and it took a, 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 a job in Japan uh, to, you know, to boost. Well, I got my love back of football first, and then over the course of years, I got my love back of Tottenham, uh, which hopefully shines through the book. Just gonna, I'm not going to just love the club because it's Tottenham Hotspur and they can do what they want to people and they can mm. treat them how they like, you know, be it scholar with the with, with the car parking situation or whatever. I'm going to love the club because it deserves to be loved. And I love it because of what Bill Nicholson gave me, because of what Tottenham Hotspur gave me. And um, I grew up there. I became a man there. I, uh, I felt at one with the supporters. I felt that they could link in with me. I, I don't think supporters could have imagined their self being Glenn Hoddle. I think they could have imagined their self being Steve Perryman, who put the white shirt on and ran around and cared. And I'm not saying Glenn didn't care, but he had a bit more quality about what he was doing that they probably <laughs> was, was too, too much for them to, to behold, you know.
0: And finally, are you confident about the direction Tottenham are travelling in these days?
2: Yes, I um, I feel very sorry for Potticino. I particularly liked him. Um, I think he stood for the right things. He was starting to come up with some very strange um, comments. And therefore, I believe, I don't know this, I believe something had happened that soured the sort of relationship between him and the club that's got to happen at some point, And therefore, he was better off out of it, I think. Um, I think Mr Mourinho is an unbelievable manager. Easy to say that now off the back of three weeks. <laughs> but but uh, my comment at the time was that if he, if he has something to prove, on the back of the Man United situation, if he has something to to prove still in football, that would be a magnificent signing. And as much as I didn't want Poch to go, I I doubt if they could have done it in a better style as per the way that they've done it.
0: Any regrets about anything that you did or anything that you didn't do in terms of personal achievement, you felt that you could have done better?
2: I I should have not gone back to Tottenham with Aussie as much as the lure was so great to return when he asked me to be his assistant. Um I was manager of Watford and um if it had been the Tottenham that I knew and loved, then I was right to have gone back. It wasn't. And therefore every day was uh was a, a sort of I I worried about the direction our club was taking, um how people were treated, etc. And these were people that I'd known for twenty, thirty, forty years and um it was not a good it was not a good place to be. Mm-hmm. So I couldn't wait to get out. So I should not have joined in the first place. I joined. I left the best chairman I ever came across. He's now a Sir Jack Petchy. He was the owner of, of uh, Watford. I left him to join uh, the, the Sugar Lead um, Spurs, and that was a huge mistake. Huge.
0: He did warn uh, you about that, by the way, didn't he?
2: He did. He did. <laughs> he's a very intelligent man. He's not. A, he's not a you know wealthy man that he is today uh, by luck. Um, he had. He had principles in play, he had organisation in play that I've not seen since. But it led to me going to Japan, which was one of the best moves I've done. A very respectful place. I went from a place that had no respect to a place that was full of it. and Me and Ozzy thrived there. And uh, probably the second mistake is leaving that club, Espos, after five years where we'd had so much success. We'd won a championship, which was like uh, Leicester winning the, the league. Uh, we won a Europe uh, asian competition. I was manager of the year, as was Aussie some years earlier. Um, I came back because of two young daughters, one four, one five and a half, and we felt we needed to get those two back into English education. They were speaking more Japanese than English, which is not a <laughs> bad thing. And... Uh, uh, I sort of jumped, uh, well, I didn't jump, it was five years. I should have stayed at that club because when you put five years of your life into a group of players, um, you should then let it, not, not that you're going to cruise or you're going to step back and and let it run itself, of course not. But those players were absolutely on my wavelength. And uh, I, I, to come back to England was probably a mistake um, at that point. So um, that, that's my only two regrets, rejoining Tottenham uh, or leaving Japan.
0: Well, I uh, really hope you enjoyed that conversation with Steve Perriman, who enjoyed that quite remarkable career with Tottenham Hotspur, spanning 866 games. His book is out now. It is available from all of the usual major outlets. It is called A Spur Forever. Time then to take a look at what is on the best-selling lists in both the UK and the US, and we'll begin in the US this month. The Ford versus Ferrari story is not only being played out on screen at present with Christian Bale and Matt Damon in that rather epic film, but also on the bookshelves as well. It's well-represented. The Carroll Shelby Story by Carroll Shelby and Go Like Hell, the story of that Ford versus Ferrari showdown at Le Mans, both appearing at the top of the best-selling book charts in the US. And look out as well for The Carroll Shelby Story, a new documentary which is out in the new year. It's available via Chassis Media. Also appearing, Ian O'Connor's book on Bill Belichick, or Belichick, or it could even be Bulichick, if you listen to the man himself, actually pronounce his own name. Uh, For NFL fans, of course, this is the definitive biography of one of the most controversial, enigmatic and successful coaches, winner of five Super Bowl championship trophies with the New England Patriots. The author Ian O'Connor of the New York Times promises to delve into the mind of this legend. Another interesting choice is Canyon Dreams. This is by Michael Powell. Uh, This is the story of a Navajo high school basketball team... And its struggles and unique obstacles. It said that face Native Americans living on reservations. The author himself actually chronicles his season-long immersion in the town, the culture, and indeed the team roaring back by kurt simpson relives the story of this incredible year for tiger woods the dramatic return to glory in the 2019 masters after a seemingly never-ending list of life events conspiring against him it was the return that uh, nobody really foresaw all blood runs red is the story of eugene bullard boxer pilot soldier spy A remarkable life story which saw him leave his hometown in Georgia at the age of just 11. He ended up in Europe where he found fame as a boxer. He became the first African-American fighter pilot in history. He was a spy in the French resistance and an American civil rights pioneer. And as the Olympic Games are in the news again, dreamers and schemers might be one for you. This tells the story of how an improbable bid for the 1932 Olympic Games transformed Los Angeles from, quote, a dusty outpost to a global metropolis and equally of interest is a team of their own which offers us a unique look inside what actually happened when north korea and south korea combined their women's hockey teams to play a unified squad at the Pyongyang olympic games that's then a selection of what is selling in the us what about the uk Well, you can take your pick of football player biographies, Crouch, Owen, Matter, Milner, Company, and don't forget the books that we've already featured in previous episodes of this podcast, The Singing Winger by Haider Joanne, telling the story of of colin granger we've had mark bright's biography that is a very good book indeed and of course we had mad dog the story of thomas Graves and the last of the football mavericks all those are still available as for cricket jonathan agnew offers his test match diary a behind the scenes look back Uh, This uh, rather memorable year in cricket for the England team, the World Cup victory, Ben Stokes' match-winning innings to save the ashes at Headingley, it's all there. And if that is something that interests you, then do have a listen again to one of our previous editions of this podcast – where we talked to Peter Baxter, who for over three decades was the producer of Test Match Special before he went on the road with that two-man show with Henry Blofeld. Uh, The book is called On the Boards with Blowers. It's very amusing indeed. Donald McRae has written some of the finest boxing literature over the last three decades. Dark trade, lost in boxing, and the even better in black and white which was the untold story of joe lewis and jesse owens that was a fantastic book his latest book in sunshine or in shadows follows the traditions of previous he tells the story of jerry story who ran the holy family gym in new lodge belfast at the height of the troubles and he would insist despite being in the ira's heartlands that his gym was there for all Uh, we also get to the story of him as he goes on to train barry mcguigan and the olympian hugh russell now one of the great voices of bbc sport is ian robertson he has his book out titled talking a good game as he looks back on what he calls 47 years of fun at the BBC, motorsports once again is bursting with offerings this month from the likes of Jensen Button, Lewis Hamilton, and Jason Plato. And new this month, the mechanic. This is the secret world of the F1 pit lane by Mark Elvis Priestley, McLaren's former number one mechanic, who takes us into a world which isn't all about engineering and computers and five-second wheel changes. Apparently, these boys can be rather legendary party animals as well. Now, Mark spent a career working with the likes of Coulthard, Hakenen, Alonso, Hamilton and Kimi Raikkonen. And finally, as indeed it is the festive season, that mainstay of the Christmas market, the annual is still going strongly. Every Premier League club is offering one, usually priced at around eight ninety nine. as indeed our match of the day, Match Magazine, and the England rugby and football teams as well. Well, that rounds up the selection of offerings from the bestsellers lists from the UK and the USA from this month. We will have more next month. Well, that is just about it for this month. Hope you've enjoyed the programme. And don't forget, you can listen in to all of the previous episodes via the website at www.talkingsportsbooks.com or via iTunes, Google, Spotify and Stitch. And I'll be back in January with a new show. In the meantime, have a great Christmas and New Year. From me, Tim Capel, bye-bye.